You're now tuned in to the Desire to Trade podcast, a show where we bring you the best figures of the trading world and teach you how you can become a successful trader. This is your host, Etienne Kret. Etienne Kret here, Forex trader and founder of Desire to Trade. Welcome to episode 99 of the Desire to Trade podcast. This week, from Thailand, I've been sitting down with a really great trader, Troy Bombardia, a trader based in Australia that was mainly focused on trading the US stock market index. What I like the most about Troy is his big emphasis on long term and not being too caught up in the market every single day. That's especially good when you're at the point where you want to trade and travel, for sure. You'll see with this interview how Troy trades and also his thoughts on currency trading, which I think are really insightful. Troy spent a lot of time trying to understand the fundamentals in the market and he shared with us some things you have to consider whenever you trade, whether you trade Forex, stock market, or pretty much anything else. I'll leave you guys with this. I think it's a game-changing interview and I had some great advice from it. Please help me welcome Troy Bombardia. Troy Bombardia, welcome on the podcast. How's it going today? Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you here today. And we always ask the guests as the first question, what is one quote that inspires you? Well, I believe it was from Remnants of a Stock Operator, which is, the final eighth is the most expensive eighth. Cool. Can you explain a little bit that quote and why you picked it? Yeah, so the idea behind that is, for example, my trading strategy is I don't try to catch the hardest trades. I always and only go for the easiest trades because let's say there's a big trend and you want to catch the whole thing. Don't catch the whole thing because the final bit of that trend is also the riskiest part of that trend. The trend might reverse and that reversal might hurt your position. I like that. I like that. So tell us what's going on these days a little bit for you. Uh, so these days right now, well, I closed my hedge fund around two years ago, so it's no longer open to outside investors. But right now, I'm just running it as a family office, and I'm traveling the world and investing at the same time. <laughs> so right now, I'm here in sunny Sydney, where the winter is 15 degrees compared to Canadian <laughs> winters. That's quite a step up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Compared to even Montreal, it's pretty crazy. I like that. And yeah, that's right. I guess we'll go back in time a little bit because a lot of people want to probably get to where you are right now, which is trading a fun, traveling, which is like the good lifestyle to have. But tell us how you started to trade and how did you come to trading in the first place? Yeah, well, it's actually definitely a crazy story. So um, I started back when I was in high school and this was during uh, 2007. So right at the top of the previous bull market. And because I have a naturally bearish bias, so I did really well during the 2008 crash, which was, so basically I just kept on shorting XLF, which was the financial ETF, because my idea back then is that if you want to short the stock market, you want to short the sector that is the weakest, right? And the weakest sector is obviously the financial sector because that's where the problem was. So I shorted that all the way down, doubled my money that year, and I felt like a genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then initially on the... um. U.S. stock markets March, April bounce. So I bought uh, SPY on that bounce and made a lot of money on that bounce. But I still thought it was a bear market. So the S&P 500 bounced like 900. 
And then from there, I started to short XLF again. And I just kept on shorting it as the S&P went up and up and up into 2010. And during that whole time, I didn't really have a good understanding of fundamentals. I just basically thought, you know what? The U.S. economy isn't that good. Therefore, this should be a bear market. I didn't understand the state of the economy, the state of the data. I didn't know which economic data was important and which economic data wasn't important. So basically, my entire training strategy revolved around technicals. And the thing about the U.S. stock market is technical trading doesn't work that well when you get a really strong trend because a lot of retail investors push into the market and extremely overbought markets can become way more overbought. So I kept on shorting the S&P up all the way until the S&P uh, rallied into March of 2010. And I cut my um, shorts right at the top, right before the S&P made a big correction during the summer of 2010. So basically shorted and then just cut my loss at the worst time possible. And then I saw the S&P fall 17%. And I said to myself, you know what? What I'm doing isn't working. Clearly, there's something wrong, not just with my trade, but with my trading strategy. So basically, over the next half year, I read a lot of books. For example, I read the Market Wizard series, read a lot of remnants of stock operators, how to make money in the stock market by William O'Neill. So basically, I just educated myself as much as possible. And I also started following Jeremy Grantham, who is the hedge fund manager behind GMO. I think it's like a $150 billion hedge fund. And basically, from all that, I developed a quantitative way to trade the S&P 500 from a more long-term perspective. So essentially what the quantitative model does, it predicts the S&P 500 bull markets, bear markets, big corrections, and everything else in between. So basically everything else in between is when it's a bull market, but it's not a big correction. And that quantitative method is use a combination of fundamentals and technicals to make those predictions. So yeah, so basically, I uh, ran that as a hedge fund from around 2011 to 2015. Did really well. And basically now I'm just living the uh, good life. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So tell us about your trading style today. Since you have a system like this, do you trade manually? Do you place your trades by yourself? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so actually over the past month, I've made quite a big change to my training style. And actually, because I'm purely quantitative, I can backtest all of my ideas and see how well it works. So basically, before what we used to do was we used to buy and hold as long as there was no significant correction in the U.S. stock market. So a significant correction would have been like the correction of mid-2011, the correction of mid-2010, and the correction from May 2015 all the way to February 2016. Right. So basically, we used to buy and hold. So we would buy and hold for a very long period of time. It might take up to years unless there was a uh, significant correction. And so recently, the thinking has been, if we only catch the most risk-free parts of small rallies, then we cut our portfolio's volatility by more than half. But we only reduce our portfolio's return by 5%. So basically, with the old training strategy, we uh, average around 30% plus if you back test it all the way to 1950. But using the new one, we historically average around like 28, 29%, but our portfolio's volatility gets cut in half. So basically what it does is in any big rally, let's say you're looking at the rally from 
October 2011 all the way to May 2015, you're going to have small corrections along the way, right? So in between those small corrections, which we define as 6% uh, declines in the S&P 500, you're going to have what we call small rallies. So small rallies are anything in between two small corrections. So basically what you want to do is you want to catch the easiest, most risk-free part of those small rallies. So using a quantitative model, we can tell when the most risk-free, most guaranteed part of the small rally is over. So when that part of the rally is over, we sell our UPRO, the 3x ETF for the S&P 500, and we wait for the next um, small correction. And then when the next small correction hits, we buy UPRO when the S&P falls 6-7%. And because our other model can guarantee that it isn't a bear market and that it isn't a big correction, we know that the current small correction is limited. So we buy until the model again says that the easiest, most risk-free part of the current small rally is over. So basically, we're making like one to two trades a year, but every trade is a lot less risky, and every trade ends up yielding around like 20, 15% a year because it's UPRO and it multiplies all the S&P's gains by three times. Wow, so one to trades a year, that's pretty low, I think. So how do you kind of get yourself patient enough to wait for those trades? Is it something you've built like a habit now, like you're patient all the time? Uh, yeah, exactly. Because the original model, the way we used to trade was that we could hold a trade for like two years. But now this is actually a slightly faster model. So it's trading at a slightly faster pace. And we used to scale in and scale out. But now we've stopped scaling and scaling out. We buy 100% in and we also sell 100% out. And what happens if one of your trade for that year is like a loss? Does that mean your profit is going to be reduced a lot? Or how does that work? So that's the thing. So basically, you have to know what kind of loss you're facing. There are only three kind of losses if you're playing on the long side, right? One, you got the bull bear market wrong. So you think it's a bull market and it turns into a bear market. Well, the thing is, the interesting thing about our long-term model is that it predicts that it's a bull market right now. But it can also there's also a backup indicator in it that will definitely come out with a bear market signal when a bear market begins. And we don't define bear markets as 20% declines as the standard guys on CNBC do. We're talking about bear markets that are like 40, 50, 60%. So you're looking at like 1973, uh, 1974, 2000, 1969, 2008. So those massive once in every so many years kind of crashes, right? So basically, the model will not fail to catch a bear market just because of the way that it's designed. So the second part, the kind of loss that you would get is if you think that it's a small correction, but it's actually a big correction, right? So the part of our model, yes, that part can fail. And since uh, 1950, the model has failed to predict two of those kind of big corrections. And in that kind of situation, the only thing you can do is hold on to your UPRO and wait for the market to turn around. Your portfolio will be underwater by 30%, but as long as it's a bull market, and if you wait it out for a couple of months, you're going to be made whole again, right? And if it's a small correction, let's say you bought when the S&P fell 6%, and the S&P ended up falling 8%, and then it reversed, who cares? You only have 2% at the bottom, and that's a great risk-reward, right? Trading is ultimately all about risk-reward, and if it's down 6%, it falls another 2%. So your risk is 2%. But the S&P after that is going to rally, who knows, 10, 15, 
you have a massively good risk reward ratio for your trade. So a big part of this is to be comfortable with having some like potential drawdown a little bit, but to be able to hold them for some time. Exactly. Until you're exactly. in the same phase of the market, I guess. Exactly. And that's the thing I feel like a lot of traders don't seem to get nowadays. And part of this is because of our culture. So if you look at the hedge fund industry, why has the hedge fund industry underperformed the uh, index indexes over the past decade or two, right? It's because 30 or 40 years ago, hedge fund investors were a very select group of investors, and they cared about long-term returns. So back in, like, for example, Michael Steinhardt's days, it was okay if you had a year in which you lost, let's say, 5% or 10%, as long as, on average, you beat the index, right? But nowadays, it's like, oh, this quarter, you lost 3%. I'm withdraw my money because, you know, you can't lose 3% ever in a quarter. And like George Soros says, and Warren Buffett as well, you can't make the big money if you can't stomach the occasional loss. That's just the nature of the game, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm curious to know, though, why did you decide to go on a longer term like this instead of going on a really short term, like doing scalping mm-hmm. or something similar to this? Is there a reason? Actually, there is actually a reason for that. And so what I've noticed is because in building this model, I read the Wall Street Journal, uh, digital copies of it, every day from today to 1950. So that's like 16,000 copies of Wall Street oh. Journal. That was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how we built the model. And that's why it was so hard to build. It wasn't just like a bunch of price indicators. So the pattern I found was that if you think about it this way, right, how many stock traders can actually beat the S&P 500? when you simply multiply the S&P 500 by 3x. So a very simple exercise you can do is you take the S&P's gains, right? You multiply the daily gains by 3x in Excel, and you look at from 1950 to 2017, the S&P's average gain was 17% when you multiply it by 3x. So if you think about it, if all you did was buy and hold the S&P, you would have averaged 17% per year. And not a lot of traders can hit that target, you know what I mean? So really, the dumb way of trading, just buying and holding, isn't that bad. So that kind of opened this idea to me, which is that, you know what, maybe the real money isn't made by getting in and out of the market, because what tends to happen is you get a year like 2013, when the trend is super strong, the traders will get in on the first part of the trend, and they'll get out, and they'll miss out on the other like two thirds of the trend, right? Mm -hmm. So the way I realized it was, Okay, so let's start off with the premise that buy and hold can actually beat a lot of traders. And that's what it is. A lot of traders can't even hit 15% a year. So, okay, let's say if you were an idiot, all you did is buy and hold, and you got 17% a year. What if on top of that, you could avoid the bear markets? Well, your return would go up even more, right? So, and bear markets aren't even that hard to predict. Because the thing is, all traders need to know whether it's a bull market or a bear market because no trading strategy is going to work as well in a bear market, right? For example, let's say, very simple example, use an indicator like RSI, the contrarian indicator, right? In a bull market, when RSI hits 30, the market will bottom, right? Because the natural trend is going up. But in a bear market, when the RSI hits 30, that doesn't mean anything. The RSI can continue to crater. It might crater to like 10, 9, right? Before the market actually bounces. So traders anyways have to know whether it's a bull market or a bear market. So you combine that knowledge with the buy and hold knowledge, and you already beat 17% per annum, right? And then 
I said to myself, well, is it possible to avoid the big corrections? Because a big correction in the S&P is equivalent to 40 to 60% drawdown in UPRO, right? So if you can avoid the big corrections, you buy at the bottom of the big correction, and the S&P makes a new high, instantly you're up 100%, right? So basically, by combining those two things, I realized that actually in the U.S. stock market, it's better to take a longer-term approach to trading. Now, this isn't true in all markets. If you trade like that in, for example, the currency markets, you will get killed. <laughs> That's why most currency traders are very short-term. And currency trading is very technical in nature. It's not that fundamentally oriented. So why do you think currencies are different? And I guess, how would you adapt if you were to trade currencies starting tomorrow, for example? All right. So because I've thought about trading currencies for a long time, but the um, S&P fundamental trading, that's too profitable. So <laughs> I'm sticking with what I do. But the thing, I follow a lot of currency traders on Twitter, and I also know a lot of currency traders. And I think a lot of them have the same common error, which is that they don't really understand fundamentals. Because if you think about it this way, right? I'm just talking about the US dollar index. And since most of the US dollar index is the euro, I think it's like 57% of the USD index is euro. The main focus is on the USD euro pair, right? Yeah. So if you look at the historical, uh, the massive chart of the US dollar index, you'll realize that the US dollar, either it soars for a couple of years, it craters for a couple of years, or it swings sideways in a massive range for a couple of years, right? For example, 1980 to 1985, it soared. That was the Reagan era and all that, right? 1985 to 1990, it tanked, right? 1991 to around 94, it kind of just like swung down there in that massive range. And then 95 to 2002, you had another massive rally, right? And then 2002 to 2007, it tanked. And then since 2013, the US dollar has been on a massive uptrend. So the thing is, those kind of massive trends aren't caused by technicals. And that's the thing a lot of currency traders fail to understand, I think, which is that fundamentals do play a role in determining those massive trends, right? But it's not the standard fundamentals that people think of that you would use in the stock market. It's not, oh, relative GDP. It's not relative interest rate differentials. It's not any of that standard stuff that the media focuses on when explaining the US dollar's trends, right? It's money flow. Money flow is what determines the long-term trend for the currency markets. And money flow is actually a really simple idea. You don't have to be that smart to understand it. Basically, what it means is that look at where the profit opportunities are. When the profit opportunities in one country are massively greater than the profit opportunities in another country, money is going to flow into that country and that's going to impact the USD. So here's an example, right? From 1980 to 1985, why did the US dollar soar? Well, one, initially from 1980 to 1982, it was the massive interest rate differentials, right? The US, I think, had long-term yields of around like 19, 20%. It was just crazy, right? Much higher than Europe. So investors from around the world flooded into the American markets, into the American bond markets. And in doing so, they had to buy a lot of US dollars. So the US dollar soared, right? And if you look at various economic indicators like the housing starts and all that, you'll realize that the US economy was just booming from 1983 to 1985. So that contributed to the US dollar's massive rally, right? And then, so why did the US dollar tank from 1985 to 1990? What other events happened along with that? 
Well, it was the Japanese boom, right? The Japanese boom back then was very similar to the Chinese boom from 2002 to 2008, right? Basically, back then, everyone was saying, oh, Japan's going to take over the world. American companies are going to get their uh, butts kicked and all that, right? <laughs> and I think at one point, it was the land under the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was worth more than, I think it was like California and two other states combined. It was insane. Wow. So basically, all this money just flooded into the um, emerging markets, mainly Japan, right? So the US dollar tanked. And then after 1991, the Japanese market cratered, and that was the end of that story. But the thing is, there was no big difference in the world from 1991 to 1994. So that's why the US dollar didn't continue to tank or soar after that, right? And then starting 1995 to 2000, you had the internet bubble. Now, back then, the internet bubble was primarily confined to the U.S., so the internet in places like Europe, it was much more underdeveloped than in the U.S., so all of this money from overseas just flooded into the U.S., and then to prop up the internet boom, and so the U.S. dollar soared again, right? So basically, and then that was a massive bull market in the U.S. dollar, and then from 2001 to 2002, the U.S. dollar just kind of flattened at the top, right? And that tends to be the historical pattern. If you look at 2008, if you look at 1973 to 1974, during bear markets for the U.S. stock market, the U.S. dollar either flattens or it rises because the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. So in times of panic, investors go into the safe haven, right? And then starting from 2002, that's when the euro began. And that's also when the China story began. So all this money flooded from the U.S. to China to Europe where the profit opportunities were greater and the U.S. dollar tanked, right? So since 2008, the U.S. dollar from 2008 to 2013 just kind of flattened there at the bottom, right? And what happened in 2013? Why did the U.S. dollar soar from 2013 to 2015? Because one, the Chinese economy deteriorated massively. There was no more massive profit, profit opportunities in China. The European economies tanked and emerging economies tanked as well, right? So suddenly, the U.S. became much more attractive compared to all other countries, and money flooded into the U.S., and the U.S. dollar soared, right? So when you have that basic understanding of money flow, you can understand whether it's a bull market or a bear market in the U.S. dollar. So right now, what's happening is we are in the final leg of the current economic expansion. Based on our models, it has like two to three years left, and it's adjusted as time goes on. And during that final leg, what you always get is inflation that picks up. And inflation always hurts the US dollar in the end. So we think it's a bear market in the US dollar. And you have to have that long-term outlook in order to trade currencies. Because what I'm seeing right now is a lot of currency traders are going long the US dollar at around 96, 97.5, because that's the support, right? Before the Trump breakout. And if you look at the 2002 US dollar decline, you'll realize that there is no decent bounce once the U.S. dollar begins a bear market. Once the U.S. dollar is in a bear market, it just craters all the way through, and it's being pressed down by a um, simple moving average and a very tightly uh, knitted moving average, like the 28 daily moving average, right? So basically, you want to trade from the short side, and you really don't want to trade from the long side, just because there might not even be a tradable bounce. You might only have a consolidation before the U.S. dollar continues to fall again. So basically, you have to combine the fundamentals with your technically-oriented trading strategy. You have to have 
a technically oriented trading strategy in the currency markets, you have to combine the fundamentals to know which side of the market you want to trade on. Because if you trade on both sides of the market, one side of the market is inevitably going to lose money. I like that because it's like taking a bigger picture of the whole market. That's pretty easy to understand also, which is really good. I think it's really easy to rely on like stats or data you see coming in the news, but you never know really how it's going to impact the market. Mm-hmm. While well, this is kind of much easier mm-hmm. to understand. It. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So basically, whenever the long term is unclear, for example, I really had no idea what the US dollar was doing from 2015 to 2016. You want to step back and think about the big drivers that are impacting the long term, not the day-to-day news and that stuff, because you can get lost in the day-to-day news. The thing is, I see it's very easy to look at from the future, like today looking at the past, how the money flow. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. how do you decide where the money flows when you're like in the moment? Okay, so I'll tell you about it right now. Actually, let's imagine we were in the beginning of 2017 when a lot of people still thought that Trump might start a trade war, protectionism and all that, right? So actually, in the beginning of 2017, we thought that the U.S. dollar would have another massive bull leg. Because what you have is at any given moment, you have to list out the big changes, the big factors that are happening in this world, right? So in early 2017, you knew that one of the big potential factors would have been a trade war between the U.S. and Mexico. And historically, whenever you have a trade war, you know the U.S. is going to win because it's the U.S. versus Mexico. U.S. has all the bargaining power, right? Because the U.S. is the customer, right? (laughs) So if you knew that if Trump did start a trade war, the U.S. dollar would have another massive bull market, right? And that's essentially the point that a lot of other hedge fund managers are saying, like Jim Rogers, like David Tepper. They're saying that the U.S. dollar would rise at least another 8 to 9%, which for the currency markets is a massive rally, right? And... So by around April, March 2017, you realize that, no, Trump isn't going to fight the trade war. Well, so that bullish factor for the U.S. dollar is gone. That long-term bullish factor for the U.S. dollar is gone, right? So what long-term factors do you have left? You know that inflation is coming because this is we are in the eighth year of the current economic expansion. And as the expansion ages, and for example, you look at the tightness in the labor market, you know that wage growth is picking up. Inflation is picking up, right? And also, you know that historically, inflation has killed the U.S. dollar. So that happens. And you look at other data around the world. The Chinese and European economies continue to improve, right? So as they improve, the massive difference between the U.S. and other countries from 2013 to 2015, that is gone. So that bullish factor for the U.S. dollar is no longer gone. And you have a new bearish factor, which is inflation. So when you combine those two factors together, and you ask yourself, are there any other factors that I'm really missing? And you say no, then you're going to have a bearish long-term outlook. So the idea and also, compares different to, to compare different countries. Exactly. You're comparing different countries, and you're listing the main factors. And the other current concern in April was that you were afraid that, you know, maybe uh, France, Pen won, right? And then France, somewhere down the line, would vote to leave the EU. That would kill the euro, right? <laughs> We've seen that happen to the panel when they leave the EU. And, um, but now that France, that concern is gone. And if you look at Merkel's polls in Germany, she's beating the other party. You realize that, no, that concern for the European Union is gone either. So there are no big bearish factors left for the euro, right? And now you have this massive new big bearish factor for the USD, the rise in inflation. 
when you combine those three things, you realize that the long-term outlook for the U.S. dollar isn't bullish at all. Mm-hmm. And how often are you going to reevaluate your analysis on this? Is it going to be like every quarter or every year? Oh, it's every day. Every day. I always, yeah, basically every day you want to wake up, read the news, and then ask yourself, what factors am I missing? You don't want confirmation bias. You don't want to find information that confirms your views. You want to find information that goes against your views and then debate it to yourself whether it makes sense or not, right? And that's why I love reading Zero Hedge because <laughs> right now I'm bullish on the stock market and I'm looking for things that might prove that I'm wrong. And Zero Hedge is a permanent bear. So, yeah. <laughs> like, and that's what I was going to ask you. What are the sources you use to uh, find your analysis? Because probably a lot of them, like TV, are going to be more biased. Uh, so. Yes, definitely. So I read a lot of different sources every day. I'll just give you a brief rundown. For general news, I stick to Bloomberg and CNBC. And I read their websites. I don't really watch the uh, TV and all that. And recently, I found that Bloomberg has become better than CNBC. Just because CNBC is too focused on like personal finance, the whole like Trump scandals and all that. Bloomberg is more market-oriented, right? So in terms of news, I like Bloomberg. I also like Investing.com. They're pretty good. They have that like every morning and every afternoon, the five things you may have missed today or five things ahead today, just in case you missed any major info, right? I read Zero Hedge uh, mainly just because I want to know what risks there can be. But obviously, most of the stuff from Zero Hedge is just pure like scare, trying to scare you and that kind of useless stuff, right? So I read them. And then I also follow a bunch of traders on Twitter. Sentiment Trader, they're a research firm and they have a subscription service. I subscribe to them. They basically just like tell you about sentiment in the market and how high or low sentiment is right now. And I also follow Urban Carmel because his trading strategy is very similar to mine. It's a fundamentally oriented strategy. And I'm just trying to see what I miss. And I just follow, I know a lot of other traders. I get on calls with them every couple of days just to see what I'm missing, what they're thinking, that sort of thing. Yeah, which I think is the best way to have opinion and to know like what to do a little bit more. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I always follow the news first, develop my own opinion first, and then I talk to others. You don't want to talk to others before you develop your own opinion mm-hmm. because their thinking is going to influence yours for sure. Right. And how do you define a bull or a bear market? Is it your system that's telling you this is a bull, this is a bear? Uh, no, so actually, yeah, there's, just look at the chart. It's very simple. So basically, a bear market for the S&P 500 is anything that exceeds a 40% decline and lasts more than one year, right? So basically, historically, there have only been a few over the past 100 years. 1929 was an obvious one. Uh, 1937, that was another obvious one. 1968, 1969, that was another one. 1973, 1974, 2000, 2002, and 2008, right? So bull market is basically everything else in between that. And what the model does is it predicts when the next bear market will start. And if it is a bear market right now, then it predicts when this bear market will end. Would you have like different criteria for currencies? Because for oh, yeah, drop in the currency sure. is going to... For sure, yeah. <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. I think in the currency markets, you can't define bull and bear markets that quantitatively. You have to just look at it from a chart and then you say, oh, because the history in the currency markets, there's not that much history, right? I mean, the US dollar was only floated in like 1972, 1973. So it's not like the stock market where you have 100 years of history available. So you kind of just have to eyeball 
the uh, long-term chart and say, oh, that's a massive rally. That's going to be a bull market. That's a massive decline. That's going to be a bear market. And you end up with like a bull market is 1980 to 1985, 1995 to 2002. And a bear market is like 1985 to 1990 and 2002 to 2007. And do you have any typical time frame you would look at in that case? For the US dollar, I think cycles actually do work pretty well in the US dollar time cycles. So I follow Gary Savage. He trades like gold currencies and a bit of stocks, but he's really good at gold and currencies. And his idea is that you can split the US dollar into what he calls intermediate cycles and daily cycles. And intermediate cycles are like 18 to 25 weeks. So what is that? Around like four months, four or five months-ish. And um, basically what that means is from bottom to bottom, so basically the entire US dollar's wave, it's going to be around 18 to 25 weeks. So basically what, what that kind of tells you is, let's say right now is week 17, the US dollar has been rallying for 17 weeks. You know that the US dollar is going to make a correction really soon because you're approaching the end of that intermediate cycle. It's 17 weeks right now, and the intermediate cycles only last 18 to 25. Therefore, the US dollar should make a correction. Mm-hmm. And would you personally trade correction, or you're looking only to trade with the trend in that case? In currencies, I would trade only with the trend. So, for example, if I was bearish on the US dollar's long term, I wouldn't short it from top to bottom because that would take five years. I would trade the intermediate cycles, but I would only trade on the side of the long-term trend. And what would be your best advice for people working to get into quantitative trading? Like, what are some things they have to consider or some things they have to plan before jumping in? Um, best advice is it's actually not that hard. Most of my models are just built on Excel. <laughs> you don't need any specific coding knowledge. But what you want to do before you jump into it is you want to read as much history as possible. Because all quantitative models are based off the historical backtesting, right? And the only way you would kind of know indicator XYZ works for this market is if you go through history, you read a lot of history, you see what other people are doing, and you test out their ideas. So for example, trader ABC said that this indicator works. We'll test it out, do the math, do the backtesting and see if it actually does work or not, right? And build off of the stuff that other people have done. You don't have to imagine every single indicator on your own. Build off what other people have done and simply improve upon it. This isn't a high-tech business where you're trying to invent something that's completely new. <laughs> yeah, I like you say that because it's a big thing. Like people think creating a strategy has to be defining everything and creating everything, but it's much more simple than that. You just pick parts from different place and create your own strategy. Exactly. Learn from others, combine it, and then add some of your own stuff. You don't have to create something that's completely new and out of the ballpark. Yeah, which is going to be really time-consuming and really hard, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Unless you're like the guys at Renaissance Technologies, those PhDs with the Nobel Prizes and all that, <laughs> you're not going to invent something that's crazily new. I like that. I like Anything we didn't cover in the interview you'd like to uh, discuss or any advice you'd like to, to give people? Uh, yeah, just one last piece of advice. I think the best advice I've gotten is wait for the best trading opportunities. You don't always have to be in the markets, in and out of the markets. Sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing <laughs> and then wait for a really good opportunity and then knock it out of the ballpark from there. And how do you define the best opportunities? Do you have like a criteria or is it easy to spot for you? Yeah, actually, the criteria, you should ask yourself what the criteria is. For example, 
if you don't think the risk reward is that great, if you're kind of hesitating on the trade saying, uh, I'm not really sure if I should take it, don't take that trade. Take the trades in which you are you have a very high conviction. It's kind of something you develop over time, I guess, and that's how I've been doing it for me. Definitely. Over time. I like it. So how can people find you if they want to connect with you or reach out to you? Oh, uh, yeah. So I have a personal blog where I talk about my thoughts on the U.S. stock market and other markets, and I also share the results of our models. It's bearmarket.net. And no, it's not a permanent bear blog. It's just saying that in the stock market, you want to be bullish most of the time, but you want to watch out for the bear markets. <laughs> I like that. And Troy, what kind of goal do you have for the future? Just continue investing. You know what? My goal is to be a billionaire by the time I'm 40. I think I can hit. I've done the calculations. I think I can hit that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And what's your motivation for this? I don't know. I just grew up when I was really young. I wasn't that well off financially. And I think that a lot of people say passion is what drives you. But in the trading world, that's not it. For a lot of traders, it's not having that money when they're young that really drives them. And then once you're a billionaire, you can do a lot of stuff. You, know, you can start a rocket company, be like Elon Musk, and then fly to Mars or something. <laughs> like we'll it. see. It's not a bad thing. I like it. Cool. So, Troy, we have a question we ask a guest at the end of every podcast. So if you could give only one piece of advice mm-hmm. for traders in one sentence, what would that one sentence mm-hmm. of advice be? Work hard. That's definitely it. Because in trading, it's not about how smart you are. It's not about who your father is. It's just about how hard you work. Okay, cool. We have to follow up on this. So what are the things people can do to work hard? Read a lot of books. Basically, go on Amazon. Find all the popular trading books like Market Wizards, A Little Book of Common Sense Investing, all that. And just read them all. Go to the library, read them all. See what other people are doing. And then reverse engineer what they're doing and then add your own stuff onto it. Just work very hard. That's all there is to trading. And a lot of backtesting. I like it. <laughs> for sure. Troy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here. All right. Thanks for having me. So that was it, guys, for the interview with Troy Bombardier. I really hope you liked it. Feel free to let me know your thought by sending me a message or connecting with me in the Facebook group. You can join at desiretotrade.com forward slash group. Look forward to see you guys next week. Next week is going to be the 100th episode, which I'm really happy about. I'm bringing back a guest that has been on the podcast before, and I'm really thrilled about it. It's going to be cool. Enjoy the week, and I'll talk with you guys pretty soon. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Desire to Trade podcast. To get all the information on this show, free articles, and unique resources, make sure to check out www.desiretotrade.com and subscribe. Please leave us a review and let us know what you thought about the show. It's time to become the best trader you can be. See you next time.